coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. The first biggest challenge, I would say, is the mindset. The mindset that no is forever. The mindset that they're already good enough now. And the mindset that you need to sell something. What we really need to do, first of all, the mindset is that we need to serve. We influence through service. We influence by being more impactful, by being persistent. Do you want to learn the tricks the top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help. Lead to Succeed picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 23. This episode's interesting fact is 80% of buyers say no four times before saying yes. However, 92% of sales reps give up after four negative answers. This means that only one in 10 salespeople stand a chance to close most deals. I think that our guest today can offer some insight into the strange sales paradox. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Phil Gerbyshek. Phil is a former vice president of information technology at a full-service financial services company, where he and his team were responsible for supporting over 100 applications used by advisors, investment bankers, research analysts, and support staff. Phil also worked as a director of social strategy for a compliance software vendor focused on the financial services industry, where he coached, consulted with, and trained customers and prospects how to integrate social media and social selling into their daily sales practices. Currently, Phil trains salespeople and sales leaders how to increase their impact, influence, and income by maximizing their use of technology and social media in their day-to-day jobs. He's written five books, more than 3,000 articles, and has been quoted in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Inc., Entrepreneur, Daily Globe and Mail, Financial Times, Investors Business Daily, and many other publications. Phil lives in Tampa, Florida, where he spends his free time reading business books, listening to podcasts, and playing pinball. Phil, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Naftali, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's unbelievable. Really? 3,000 articles? We're going to have to to talk about that because I've written quite a bit and people tell me that I'm prolific, but I haven't touched 3,000. That's like, I don't even know if I've touched 1,000. So that's, that's an unbelievable number. Just out of curiosity, how... How often are you contributing articles to online platforms? Well, not as much as I used to, but I certainly, when I started out, and I've been blogging 13 years. So I started out, there was a year there where there were times where I would write two or three articles a day because I had several blogs that I was keeping up. Back in the heyday of blogs, when you actually got paid for advertising and got paid for creating content. So, but it's uh, Uh not as much as I'd like. So 2018 will definitely see me writing a whole lot more. Oh, well, we we will certainly be on the lookout because your content is fantastic. But Phil, you got to give me some insight on that fact that I read because, you know, to me, this is like, you know, logic 101 here. If you're training somebody, and I know you say, you do sales training, so maybe you could speak specifically to this point. If people know that they have to deal with X number of rejections prior to getting the sale, and it's just a matter of knocking on the door one more time, you've already gone, you know, one, two, three, four, hopefully, you know, to that level at least. Why is it that so many folks are stopping before they hit the Holy Grail? What's, what's the deal there? Well, I, I think first, we don't like rejection. 
I mean, really, you're married, Naftali. If you'd asked your wife to marry you and she said no, and you kept asking her over and over and over again, either you would be considered someone who's a stalker or you'd be con- think you're crazy. And it's the same with sales. If we don't, you know, first, we don't, we're not aware that that statistic exists. As much as we'd like to believe, we have to repeat that statistic over and over again about saying no. You have to hear some no's before you can get to a yes, because by default, often people's first answer is no. If you ask them if you can help them, no. Is there anything you need? No. Is there this? No. We hear no a lot. And frankly, as sellers, as people who are used to hearing no, we still don't like it. I would say that most salespeople are more okay with rejection, but we're still not okay with it. So that's the first reason. The second reason is because it isn't just a no, it's a no and don't ever call me again, no. And <laughs> I think I've done a couple of those. Mm-hmm. I have too, right? It's we. I'm guilty of that too. Um, as a person who buys things, right? All, we all do, we all buy things. We often think that we know best. As much as I would love to believe that I'm educated in everything, I'm not. There's a lot of things I don't know anything about, a lot of things that I don't even realize I need. So I lead with no, unfortunately. I think a lot of people who buy things do. And so people don't get past that. I mean, they they go for the low-hanging fruit, the easier yes, or at least the maybe. So first, we don't like rejection. Second, it's hard to deal with rejection. And third of all, frankly, we don't know if it really is just one more knock on the door. We don't know if it really is five or if it's 10 or if it's 15. And I say that because if most of us quit before we get to four or five, we don't know really where that number is. And with some people, it is more. And there is a tender balance between being persistent and being a pain in the butt. So if you're listening to this, you're a salesperson and you're used to hearing no, good for you. You're going to hear it more. In fact, you'll probably hear it more. I would tell you, though, to prepare to get through the no, you need to prepare to get through the no. So that means do your homework, have some information ready so that you can have a conversation, even if someone says no, and know that the the goal of the conversation, as much as it really ultimately is to make a sale, the real goal is to earn the right to a further conversation. It is not always to close them with a hard yes or no. So if you can focus on that and building the relationship and getting to a point where they trust you enough to say yes, you will win more and you will hear no probably just as much, but you'll also start to hear yes, at least now and then. Great. Awesome. So I I got a couple of questions to go a little bit further with you. First of all, I'm curious. um, I have a feeling that because of the way that we've been inundated with email, uh, with social media, and just with a lot of noise, that the situation may be worse, even though we've got more tools at our disposal. And I want to broaden this, by the way, because obviously you're an expert in sales, but we all know that sales is not just about selling widgets or even services. It's about influence on a variety of levels. And I do want to come back to that. But for the short term, do you feel, number one, Phil, that things are worse today or harder for salespeople than they were before? And then number two, and this is something that I think really could speak to anyone who's listening and lead to Succeed Nation, regardless of whether you formally consider yourself a salesperson or not. I do want you to to elaborate, if you don't mind, about that, not that paradox, but that 
that point between, like you said, persistence of being a pain in the rear. When do you know when to stop and when do you know to keep going? So to recap, question number one is, is it worse today than it's been in the past because of the way people feel inundated, they're not even opening the door, answering the phone anymore, that kind of thing. And number two, in general, where do you coach people to draw the line between persistence and just stopping because at that point, they're just creating more negativity than good? Good question. So is it harder now? In many ways, the answer is yes. A hard sell is harder to make now. Pushing someone to believe your point of view is harder now. Whether you're a leader or a salesperson, we're selling ideas. Ultimately, we're selling the idea that something will make someone's life better. And because we're so inundated with information that frankly makes our life worse, yes, it's much harder now because people don't believe us like they once did. Because frankly, we don't tell the truth like we once did. Now I have a cough drop in my mouth that promises my mouth to be 37% more moist. Well, I can't measure that, so I don't believe it. That's the first thing. So absolutely, it is a hard yes, much harder now, not to mention most people pitch way too soon. So when we answer part two of that question, Naftali, and that is, you know, how do we draw the line between persistence and just being a pest? Well, first of all, if you're adding value, you are being persistent. If you are finding new ways of sharing information, you are being persistent. If you call up and, hey, Naftali, I'd just like to check in with you. The answer is go away. You're being a pest. So how I coach the line is you think about as much value as you have to add. This is why marketing and sales, marketing and leaders have to work together have to work together to create more content that can be shared. If you're coaching your team and someone doesn't hear you the first time when you say something or they say, no, that's not a problem for me, you have a choice. You can either continue to beat the same drum and sing the same exact song, or you can change your approach and you can change the information you share. Sometimes that means changing the method in which you deliver that. So it could be, if you're coaching someone, it could certainly be an article, a conversation with you, a video, a book, multiple ways of sharing the same information. So if you're adding value, that's how you know that you're being persistent. If you are just checking in or doing a quick checkpoint that adds no value, then you are being a pest. Got it. So that's actually very interesting because when I first read that statistic, I mean, it's a very short statistic, so it didn't go into much detail, but it definitely did not give me the impression that it was more than just being persistent and doing the same thing again and again. It sounds to me that you're advising people to continually find ways to add value uh, so that if approach number one doesn't work, you try number two, you try number three, but you're sh you're shifting the message I heard both in terms of content as well as in presentation style. Did I understand you correctly? That's exactly correct. Absolutely. I mean, again, if I ask directly, do you want something and you say no, often that is not because it is no, it is because you don't have enough information to make a yes. So share more information, change the channel as far as the method that you're sharing it and you will be more successful. Got it. Okay. Interesting. So. We may have already hit on this, Phil, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you 
because uh, we part of leadership, as as you know, and you talk about all the time, is about overcoming challenges, identifying them, and overcoming them. So, in your training work, what would you say is the biggest challenge of folks that you work with, both the salespeople and the sales leaders, and how do you help them? Well, the first biggest challenge I would say is the mindset. The mindset that no is forever, the mindset that they're already good enough now, and the mindset that you need to sell something. What we really need to do, first of all, the mindset is that we need to serve. We influence through service. We influence by being more impactful, by being persistent, right? That's how we get more influence as a leader, as a salesperson. So that mindset of how we do that is so important. And that is often a shift, especially for those that have a high uh, self-belief. Those who think that they are already good enough now, they often feel that they know the right way now, and their training is really for everybody else. It's not for them. So when I work with them, I show them different paths of how that works. I help them understand those no's really mean I need more information. Now, if you're someone who buys stuff and you're listening to this and you're saying, well, when I say no, I mean no. I want you to really think about Amazon. When you go to Amazon and you click on an ad or you go to Nordstrom or pick your favorite shopping place, if they're doing any sort of internet marketing, they're then showing you that thing 10 or 20 more times. I had a cool pair of orange shoes that followed me around the internet for almost three months before I finally bought them. If they'd settled it no right there, they would have never got my sale. But they followed me around and they were persistent with what they showed me. Now, they didn't add value, but sometimes that price did go down and eventually I pulled the trigger. So when I'm thinking about training, right, we have a new way of buying things. Well, that means we have to have a new way of selling things. And it's really buyer-centered selling, which is very different than it's been in the past when sellers were the center of the universe because sellers held all the information. So when I'm training, the biggest thing is mindset. And then the second thing is just that skill set to get through those no's and to make it to a yes. Beautiful. Well, first of all, I'm thinking about those orange shoes matching your orange glasses. And if anyone doesn't know Phil yet, uh, I think that he's got probably the coolest set, you know, uh, series of glass. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But coming back to the point, it's interesting because I've been listening. Uh, I listen a lot to Audible, a lot of audiobooks, and I've been referencing in some of the recent recordings uh, to sell as human by uh, by Dan Pink, mm. and he talks about the difference between the conventional, at least in that case, between a conventional uh, car used car lot and new car used car salespeople with CarMax. And how CarMax has been, in many ways, a classic example of a no-haggling experience. But more than that, they're upfront with all the information. They give you the opportunity to sit down at their location with computers looking at the same thing that the salespeople are looking at. And it creates a whole different buying experience. And frankly, even though you may not be able to haggle and perhaps can't even get the best deal in working with CarMax vis-a-vis you know, some other salespeople, you still finding that CarMax and similar types of operations are getting much more traction today. So it seems like you said that it's all about the buyer and we as salespeople, and I would argue that this is true, like we've been talking about, not just in the sales environment, but really going a little bit broader, 
in any conversation, we as the leader and as the salesperson, define it as you wish, needs to be mindful of the fact that people who are listening have much more information than they ever had before. They know what other people are making. They know what other people are doing. They understand how other organizations work. We can't just use sort of fluffy uh, statistics or, or, or responses with them because it won't go over. So we need to be upfront. We need to be transparent. We need to be honest, but we need to sell ultimately then with integrity and with a real sense of what it is that the buyer wants and buyer needs rather than what we want and what we need. Is that, is that correct? Do you feel similarly? Absolutely. It's it's buyer-centered, right? It's the person who is reporting to you centered. It is about what they want and they need and their desires. And then ultimately, if you can align those with your goals and your desires, now you have an opportunity to succeed. That's absolutely true. Beautiful. And the alignment piece is great. Yeah. So I'm wondering because, uh, uh, you know, I'm thinking of sales and I know that it really takes on a variety of different levels. I'm a little bit, uh, you know, out of my element because I'm not I'm not a salesperson first and foremost in my own mind, at least, but think about it for a second using um, those individuals who've got remote teams, whether those people are scattered throughout their respective country or they're more of an international team. What is your experience in terms of managing a remote team? And uh, what have you found the best ones do well and the ones that struggle? What advice would you give to them in order to make sure that the leaders, wherever they're physically located, are doing the right things to help their sales team optimize? That's a really great question. And it's going to become more and more uh, evident as time goes by that remote leadership is so very important. I did uh, lead a team, though, more informally. I didn't have, I had influence, but I did not have any positional authority over a team. I led a team when I was a director of social strategy. And one of the biggest things that we saw come between success and failure, one of the things that helped us move further up the failure line and into success was communication. Now, not the illusion of communication, not just holding meetings, because frankly, we had plenty of meetings. But what really happen, needs to happen is real communication. And so as a leader, as you're managing your team, you have to validate that the communication actually took place. So that means simple things like taking meeting minutes, having a meeting agenda, and sticking to it, and then delivering on those action items and holding people accountable to also delivering on those action items because they are in line with the goals of the organization is so important and so seldom done because we just check the box and we say, oh, well, we had that meeting. The communication happened. Well, if we don't have any action items, if we don't have any meeting minutes or meeting agenda, we don't know really why we did what we did. We just had a meeting to have a meeting. So that's the first thing uh, that we have to do is we have to communicate. The second thing that we have to do as remote leaders is we do have to touch base more often, not just for work product, but also when we're managing people, we also have to focus on the person because no longer do we have this quote unquote work life balance of, oh, well, I only work from eight to five and I have an hour from 12 to one for lunch and that's all I do. We are whole people. We expect that our people will spend at least some of their cycles outside of the traditional workday thinking about work, maybe responding to an email, which means they're going to spend work cycles while they're at work on their personal life. 
So we have to acknowledge that and we have to think more about the whole person. So communication, thinking about the whole person. And the third thing that we have to do is we have to be really intentional about what success looks like. We have to define that really, really clearly based on behaviors, not always on the outcome. We want those behaviors because unfortunately, while I can correct you very easily, if I'm sitting next to you and I observe your work in a remote team, it's often not until a week or a month or sometimes, sadly, even a quarter later that we find out that something didn't go as planned. Now, we've already invested a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort into developing that person and making sure that they're the right person for the team. And then they make a mistake. And often what happens is they made one mistake and now we fire them because, oh my gosh, that was really expensive. I want you to think instead about how you use that as a learning for that person and then more anonymously for the entire team. You don't want to make an example of Phil in front of the whole team about what a poor employee he was and what a bad decision he made because of something that happened three months ago. But you do want to find ways to incorporate that into your talk track so that as you're having conversation with the rest of your team, you can share that lesson more anonymously and help them see how that could have caused a problem and how they can better overcome that. So it is about frequent communication. It is about being clear and aligned in those goals, and it is about caring about the whole person. That's how I see remote leadership is working, and, and frankly, it's really hard. I failed as much as I succeeded at that, Neftali. I'd love to tell you that I'm the world's greatest leader, but I'm not. I'm human, and I make mistakes too. I would forget to put those agendas together. We would have meetings, just have meetings sometimes, and, and I can tell you that results suffered, and results were better when I did it the way that I just mentioned. Sure. And I appreciate your candor there. That was great advice. You know, it's interesting because my wife works from home and her company is based down in uh, Florida, but they the parent company is out in Minnesota. And so there's a lot of moving parts and she's here with me in New Jersey. So uh, she's been actually experiencing this for a while. We had moved from Chicago where we lived for uh, a number of years and I had taken a principalship down in Atlanta. So that was step number one of our virtual experience, at least for her. And it continued on as we moved north again. And so I can see from her, I know that she's extremely dedicated and I know that she is, uh, to me, a person of tremendous integrity. So for her, it kind of works. But I'm thinking about a manager having to manage people who maybe aren't quite up to standard, so to speak, maybe in terms of you know their time commitment or uh, the level of quality of the work that they do. And so I would think that part of the process, on top of all the great advice you've already given us, and I, I know that Lead to Succeed Nation is mining all of your gold here to really bring out uh, you know quality action items that are relevant. But it would seem to me that in the on the front end of the process, you know, really trying to identify the right people from the beginning that are going to, yes, you have to touch base with them, keep the communications lines open, et cetera, et cetera. But I would also think that it's really critical, perhaps more than ever, to do a great job on the front end, on the interviewing process, to make sure you're bringing the right people on the, into the team that ultimately are going to be an asset for you and are not going to require too much management headspace. How does that sound to you? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's even more why we need to hire for attitude and behavior more than we do for specialized skills. The mindset is the hardest thing to teach. The mindset is often the hardest thing to coach when it isn't the right mindset. So if you're not hiring the people with the right mindset, it's going to be really hard to execute on any of those things. 
I've had people on my team that were very skilled, that were unwilling to accept any feedback that was anything other than you're doing an amazing job. If that's the case, it's going to be really hard. So yes, invest that time on the front end, or you'll invest the time on the back end, trying to coach them and create individualized action plans and coaching them up just to be a, uh, you know, an average employee. So spend that time in the front end, or you will have to pay dearly for it on the back end. Got it. All right. So what do you tell people, Phil, that are still kind of, I don't want to say even 2000s, maybe the 1990s, or they're still kind of like in the the uh, prehistoric age from a tech perspective. You know, they're using email, of course, and they're online, uh, but they're not really appreciating uh, the various tools, whether it be social media or other things. And as a result, they're very low tech. How do you advise people? First of all, is that an issue? Number one. And number two, how do you get people to transition in a way to be more open? And I'm sort of thinking of this question a little bit more broadly because obviously I focused initially on tech, but I think it's relevant to almost anything in life where you've got to learn new skills. You've got to be willing to, at least in theory, change with the time. So how do you advise people and motivate them uh, to make changes that may be difficult for them and may not feel natural? Well, it, it is a problem, whether it's technology or any new change. Uh, being resistant to change is a challenge. That is a mindset thing. If you don't have a growth mindset and you're not being flexible and you have instead a fixed mindset that everything will be the same as it is yesterday, you have a big obstacle to success. So the first thing is just accept that change is natural. Change happens. Change is inevitable. It's going to happen to you. You may not be able to predict it. You may not like it. You don't have to embrace it, but you have to accept it. So that's the first thing that I would say. As far as you know, technology uh, specifically, and then I'll open it up more broader, technology is here. People have new ways of communicating. If you think about Slack, for instance, Slack is a chat channel that some people use instead of email. The reason that people gravitate there is be not because of just preference. It's because it's less noisy. There is so much crap in my email box that changing the channel and sending me a text message cuts through all that crap, and I have all of my text messages read. It's just a fact. Same with Slack. The reason people migrate to Facebook is, yes, it's because their friends are there, but if you talk about Facebook at work as a tool, it is a less noisy channel, and there's more things there that I have been intentional about selecting. It's why new employees who have a clean inbox stand a much better chance of reading and responding to your messages than employees that have been there for several years because we just get that email dust. It builds up and it becomes a snowball. So how do we do that? How do we transition from more of a fixed mindset or being a little bit resistant to tech or a little bit resistant to change into someone who is less resistant or maybe even ultimately embraces it? I think the first way is to accept that change happens, as I just mentioned. And secondly, understand why you're doing this. It is not only because change is inevitable. You can still dig your heels in and say change is inevitable. But if you're a leader, if you're in sales, if you're someone who at all deals with people, it is about the people. People want to be heard. That is why we have to embrace the changes in communication that are happening. Your smartphone has probably 15 or 20 different ways to communicate with the world. I am not telling you to use all of them all the time. 
I am telling you to find out what the other person's preferred method of communication is and use that. So I have people that love LinkedIn. I work with them on LinkedIn. I send them messages using LinkedIn. But sometimes they get tired of LinkedIn, which means I have to change the channel. I have to have a phone call with them. I should send them a text message. I should send them an email. Perhaps we should do a Zoom meeting. Maybe we have them interviewed on my podcast, whatever it is. So I want to encourage you to focus on why you're doing it. It is because of the people. If you care about people, you will change and you will embrace, at least loosely, these new forms of communication. And the third way is to really measure what's working and what's not and do more of what's working and do less of what's not. So, and this is individual though. Remember, it is not as an aggregate. It is not take the the median, which is really a compromise that nobody wants. Instead, if it is working to talk to Naftali via email, I should continue to talk to Naftali via email until it no longer works. So that means I have to pay attention to that and I have to see what's working, what's not, and then ask the question when I get those meetings of how is that working for you? So holding those one-on-one meetings then and understanding the real communication that happens is really, really important. So those are my three tips. I hope they're helpful. They absolutely are. And I, I wish we had more time to go deeper, but two things that really caught my attention. Number one, the idea of, of, of maintaining, hopefully developing, if you haven't already, the, uh, a growth mindset, which means that I actually think about in educators' terms as well and do presentations for uh, educational organizations specific to this. You know, how do we develop it amongst our students, for example? But growth mindset, in essence, is you know, saying that I can change, that my brain is a muscle, that there's a way for me to learn new things and be open to that, which dovetails nicely with what with everything else that you said, Phil, about, you know, understanding who your client is, understanding their preferred method of communication, but also not just sort of locking into one way once you've made that initial determination, but to keep going, to keep to figuring out, have they gotten tired, like you said, of one method or another, find other ways to reach them. And that I think maybe for many people, I, I can speak for myself, is one of the greatest challenges, although greatest opportunities of today, is the fact that you can't just you know lock into a particular method and assume it's going to work indefinitely. We need to be continually measuring the quality of our engagement, the quality of our conversions, all of these things with one platform versus another and keep tinkering because even the social media platforms that we're comfortable with today, who knows what's going to be in vogue and most popular in a year or two from now. There's no way to say for sure. So the more we stay on the front end of that experience and continually measure, ultimately, I think we're going to have a a recipe and a formula for more success. Totally agree. That's great. So thank you so much for all of this. This has been fantastic. We're going to lighten things up a little bit now as we transition into our rapid fire segment. So, Phil, we talked about this briefly before. Forgive me if I'm harping too much on it, but you seem, every time I see a picture of you, I, I get, the first thing that catches me when I look at your face are your glasses, other than, of course, your appearance yourself. And you seem to love wearing the bright colored glasses. What's your favorite color, Phil? Oh, well, I love orange. Orange is bright. Orange is fun. Orange is vibrant. And orange is different from other people. But frankly, orange is my favorite color. And because I'm a little bit colorblind, orange stands out to me and I can see it. Got it. Okay. The worst mispronunciation of your last name. Gorbachev. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, every time I see you, Phil, any picture that you post, et cetera, you're smiling. So what's a tip you could, you could suggest to bring a smile to somebody's face? Well, think about something that's made you happy in the past or something that you're looking forward to. And then really focus on that. And that I know that makes me smile. And then one other thing is to know that when you smile at someone, typically they smile back at you and it goes on forever. So if you smile, if you lead with a smile, eventually you'll get a smile back, which will keep that smile on your face. That's right. And it's also going to travel the world. So that's unbelievable. One last one, uh, Phil, is a little known social media fact or hack that you could share with us. Oh boy. Well, let's see. I've been blogging for 13 years. I've been on LinkedIn. Oh boy. Um, probably longer than that even. So I would say my biggest hack would be to not focus on scale and to be focused on one relationship at a time because that will scale because that one person can then refer you to other people and can tell other people about you. And the more goodness you pour into that one person, the more you're going to get back. So invest deeply with one person at a time. Awesome. Okay. So now uh, I know that everybody who's been listening uh, has gained so much from you, but uh, I want them to be able to reach out to you and and learn more about your work. So tell everybody uh, how they could reach you and anything else about your work that we haven't already covered. Sure. So, uh, well, the easiest way to reach me first is on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is my preferred network. If you just search for Gerbyshack, it'll be all over the page here, but it's G-E-R-B-Y. S-H-A-K. Just search for Gerbyshack. I'm the only Phil Gerbyshack on the planet. Um, my family anglicized that in er- the early 1900s. So I'm confident that that is true. And anyone that you hit with Gerbyshack is relation to me. So connect on LinkedIn. The other place that I tell you to go is go to my website, thesaleschronicles.com. It is completely new and full of information as well as copies of interviews that I've done and people that I have talked to. And the goal there is to help you be more influential, more persuasive, and more impactful with all of your communications so that you can get more leads, earn more referrals, and build your business. And while it sounds like that's for salespeople, I want to encourage you, if you're a leader, it is absolutely about leading yourself and leading your team. Awesome. So definitely get out there and check Phil out, get connected with him on LinkedIn, visit his website. You are going to love that interaction as I have. Uh, Phil, before we let you go today, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you for one final lesson. It could be sales related. It could be life related, whatever you feel most comfortable in sharing today. Sure. Well, my final lesson is about learning. Learn as much as you can from as many people as you can, and recognize that you in five years will be the multiplicative factor, the X times X of how many smart people you hang out with and how much you learn. So make the time to invest in people. I'm not telling you that has to go big, but you should go deep. You should find as many people as you can to learn from. And once you find a topic and a person, you should read what they have and go deep on that and then continue to share that information with other people because the X factor in life is not just what we get, but it's what we give. So give your knowledge, share what you learn, and don't be stuck in the closet being the smartest person in a room of one. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Phil. It has been a pleasure speaking with you and learning from you. 
And um, I am super excited to get this out there to lead to Succeed Nation. So again, thank you for giving me the time. And because we're recording this in late December, wishing you and all of your loved ones a happy and healthy new year and uh, looking forward to continuing our relationship moving forward. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Naftali. Today's leadership quote is from Jim Rohn. The challenge of leadership is to be strong, but not rude. Be kind, but not weak. Be bold, but not bully. Be thoughtful, but not lazy. Be humble, but not timid. Be proud, but not arrogant. Have humor, but without folly. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you could lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to head over to impactfulcoaching.com where you could sign up for our blog, download a free leadership ebook, and so much more. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.